Welcome to our Dementia Dialogue podcast, where we are discussing changing and adapting when dementia enters a person's life. This is one of four themes we are exploring in our series, Living the Dementia Journey. Our goal in sharing personal stories is to help us better understand what it means to encounter dementia, to gain some insight, and to learn how we can live fully in the face of such a challenge. Dementia Dialogue thanks our sponsor and partner, the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University, Thunder Bay, Ontario. Our guest today is Roxanne Vary, who is living with dementia. Roxanne was diagnosed four years ago in midlife and all that encompasses, career, marriage, and family. When you listen to Roxanne, you can hear the smile in her voice. Our conversation touched Roxanne's experience in the workplace, her diagnosis, advocacy work, and her and her husband's adjustments. I think you'll sense the honesty, humility, and humor that Roxanne brings to her life. So the the, uh, theme that we're uh, approaching during this first set of conversations is around people's experience uh, changing and adapting to uh, a life with dementia. And I'm wondering um, if you might just talk a little bit, kind of give the uh, listeners a bit of a context, uh, a little bit of your story, perhaps before you developed dementia, and then we can kind of get into the story of what life has been like since that's occurred. Okay. Kind of looking back now, I can see when I'd gone back to school, I was having trouble with accounting, and it was the multi-level steps in doing accounting, and for whatever reason, that had become a struggle for me and hadn't been in the past. But I think the, the real catalyst for me was I had lost two jobs. I was working as an admin assistant, and I'd lost the jobs because I wasn't able to perform the duties. And this was a real shock for me. I'd never lost a job because I wasn't competent or capable and it wasn't challenging or something I didn't feel I could do. And so that's what kind of headed us off to go see a doctor. But of course, um, at the same time, I was having some trouble with speech. And so my husband and I more were thinking along the lines that I might have had a mini stroke because I do have controlled high blood pressure. I see. You mentioned that you had lost two jobs. This must have been quite devastating for you. Yes. One job that I had, like I was really loving it, but I found what I was having to do was to write the steps down, like, you know, in the computer thing that I would have to do. Now, some days I didn't have to. That's the quandary that one faces in this, is it's not always consistent. And I was shocked with one when they let me go. The second one, I guess, because starting to realize, you know, something's up, it wasn't as devastating. And I was more beginning to see, I am having trouble doing this job. Right. Were these uh, jobs in uh, uh, small organizations or larger businesses, uh, Roxanne? Um, One was a smaller organization, and then one was a kind of a government community housing so uh, a larger organization. Yeah. In, in your conversation, uh, you know, with the employer around around this, was it seen as a performance issue or did, uh, you know, was there some talk of your 
situation from a health perspective? No, it's never really brought up from a health perspective. It was from the performance. Um, I see. And even at that time, I think when there was some mistakes made, uh, my judgment was not what they expected in, in rectifying it. And still to this day, I struggle with, with judgment and have trouble trusting it. There was these binders to put together. And again, there was many different sections in the, the binders. And so I find like I can do about three steps. And then after that, it just goes elsewhere. It just evaporates. I see. I see. And then that would begin to uh, perhaps set up kind of a, a cycle of self-doubt, I suppose you could say. Yes. Yes. The place that I was then employed at a very large crown corporation uh, called Fask Power. Oh, and yes. I had great success there. And but the reason being, because they were such a large organization, they had... Uh, print screens and everything was done out that you could refer to and I let them know later on about my diagnosis actually I don't think I had a diagnosis at that time but was suspecting something was wrong again thinking more along the lines of a stroke and then when I uh, got it went to them and they had like a HR department which is bigger than what the other ones were and they talked to me about how they would have been willing to modify duties. And I, I think I would have stayed on with them. I just had a contract and they were happy with me. My job performances were good. And I did open up to them. And there was a risk telling your employer, this is what you have and, and how they're going to respond to it. And I was really grateful for their reaction. Yes, yes. That sounds really um, progressive for an employer to respond like that. Yes. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, I don't think it's the case with most. No, no, I've no. Uh, done work in this area of trying to make employers more aware of issues related to people in the workplace that may develop some cognitive difficulties, and uh, there's a lot of work to be done. But th there is some progress being made, and I think some of the discussion around uh, dementia from a human rights perspective mm. is an important perspective. Uh, for people with dementia or with a cognitive impairment uh, that may still be working. Yeah, and I don't think necessarily all employers realize that some of the adaptations are really um, cost-effective and time-effective. Like, for example, one was I had uh, numerous keys. I, I worked in the mailroom when I worked at South Power. That was part of my duties there is working for the HR department. And I would fumble with them. And I just went and I put myself with my own initiative, different colored stickers on them. So then I knew which one was. And I put this color coordinating color sticker on the mailbox. And so then I didn't have to waste time and do it. But, you know, how much did that cost? Very little, but really helped save time. And again, uh, I was able to perform my duties. Roxanne's diagnosis helped her to understand the hurdles that prevented her from being able to work. But the diagnostic process was a mix of positives and negatives. She sees the need for a dementia diagnosis to be communicated in a way that is both honest and offers positive advice about living with dementia. Let's hear about this milestone in her journey. Describe a little bit of the process of, you know, of uh, seeking a diagnosis and how that worked for you. Yeah, the process itself was, I felt very comfortable with. I had a young doctor 
And because I was young in age, at that time I was 51, he really explored a lot of avenues with me. I went and got scans done and that didn't show anything. And he did a test for me for sleep apnea. He said that can give you the problems with the concentration and the sleep apnea wasn't enough to contribute to the symptoms I'd been having. Yes. So then from there, we went on to do some cognitive testing. I started with a basic test, which I would recommend anyone who is concerned about this, that they approach their doctor about getting an MMSE, a yes. mini mental skills evaluation. Yes. And uh, my score at that time was 28 out of 30. It's always out of 30. It's a standard test. 28 is not a bad score, but 28 is not a good score for someone who's 51. I see. So from that, then they decided to send me, I went to a wonderful facility in Regina called Wascana Rehab, and I did 12 hours of cognitive testing. Wow. That must have been a, uh, that was a tiring experience for sure. Yes. It was over two days. And the first day it was like my experience. It was fun. I told my husband, oh, I feel like I'm in elementary school. I get to draw. I get to play with blocks, you know, color. And then the second day, I think they honed the test in, and I started to see my gaps. I started to see where I was lacking. And I remember at lunchtime of the second day calling my husband, and I was near tears saying, I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to finish it. And then you you were back at the physician's office and he shared the results of the test with you? Yes. And then I asked for it and I, I got it. Not my physician, the, uh, the neuropsychologist who gave me the test, sat down with my husband and I and went over and, and explained. Now, he couldn't give the diagnosis, um, this uh, gentleman, but explained kind of where they were leaning and why they had this summary page. From that, I then had an appointment with a neurologist to go over these results. Right, right. And when the diagnosis was delivered, it was very cold and very difficult. My husband and I were just shocked. And I've I've tried to advocate in the medical community for there to be like a comfort room that, you know, suppose if one of us or both of us had broke down, which is, you know, quite possible and very understandable because yes. I was told, yes. here I am, 51 years of age, I was told I was terminal and to get in contact with the Alzheimer's Society. That, really? Like, really, that was, that was about it. It was very blunt. There was definitely this feeling like, you know, he wanted to get past us and get on to his next appointment. I, I, I really tried to advocate for that because the delivery of the diagnosis, well, I can appreciate that it's not an easy one to give. And I'm not the only one who felt the delivery of the message was a yeah. bit callous. Yeah. It's, it's so important to encourage people to, you know, look at their lives realistically, like not to couch the, the truth in proper ways, but at the same time to give people a sense of hope, a sense of there's a life yet to be lived, and mm-hmm. that there's a ways of living that life in a positive way. And that it, needs to be the tone of a, of a diagnostic conversation, it seems to me. Yes, and I guess through my experience, I've 
uh, dealt with three different neurologists and you know and I was told if needs be you know to get your affairs in order but uh, one neurologist I saw here in Alberta I was really pleased he was the only one I think all of us do this when you are given a diagnosis of any kind what is the first thing you do you go google it yes but what he did understanding our need to just want to find out more information and to be prepared he sent me links and some booklets and he was the first one to do that and so I as much as I say the other way I want to also say I've been a part of where I felt it was done right yes well that's exactly uh, you know part of the effort of the dementia dialogue uh, conversations is to give people an idea of how it can be done differently and also we want to uh, connect people to uh, resources and to other people where they can learn how to positively understand uh, the condition that they're confronted with and also then strategies on how to live life in a more positive way. Now you've come up with some ideas about how to live you know with dementia in a positive framework and I'm wondering if you could uh, share a little bit about how you you might have left the physician you know the neurologist's office you know discouraged disheartened it you know would have been a really difficult time for you but in the course of the intervening three years or mm -hmm. yeah you've, you've kind of reframed your life tell us uh, yes, a little bit actually, about how that happened you know it was a, a process i think for me you know i was young and some of the typical things they suggested like being involved in a um, support group i didn't find i was a good fit with all of them because the people were much older and i'll give um alzheimer's saskatchewan a good shout out there they went and did through health links and had it where i went to the hospital and i talked with other ladies in the province who were younger who had either the early onset or the frontal temporal but whatever it was they were they were done early and i found that very fulfilling all of a sudden i got this fire in my belly i don't know where it came from and i just wanted to have a, a voice and i got very involved in my own personal advocacy thing as you talked about i did things with media i met with uh, in saskatchewan with members of parliament i tried to get on to talk to um, the directors of a care facility that it was getting a reputation that it just needed some things as well i spoke at caregiver groups i did public speaking that i found i really felt there needed to be education and i had faced some stigma and and that was painful and with my illness there is the hereditary link and i was also motivated by the fact that i wanted my children should they get this uh, disease to hopefully be dealt with with more compassion not that they were bad i don't want to say that they were terribly bad but that they could have been you know with a little education things could have been dealt with better and i i spoke at uh, to rotary clubs i even got a chance i really felt at a certain point in time kind of wanted to change my shift from the media more to the education it really that's where it was really key and i felt perhaps was lacking a little bit so i uh, was lucky to be invited by a professor at the university of regina to speak to her social work class and ubc in uh, british columbia has a great program where 
healthcare workers that will deal with anyone with dementia or Alzheimer's, they do practical experience where their students meet up with someone with the, oh, the yeah. disease as part of their curriculum. So then I, I try to go to the post-secondary uh, minister in Saskatchewan to try to advocate to get this to be part of the nursing students' curriculum or the doctor's curriculum. But at that time, we moved, and so that ended up uh, leaving out. My husband and I had have had several hearts-to-hearts conversations because there's different stages, and, and it's always a living process. Probably the number one thing that makes early onset or someone that is young that gets this diagnosis is the impact financially. We were hugely impacted. I mean, I was 51. We thought I was going to have at least, you know, close to another decade still of working to build our nest egg. You know, the diagnosis, it's kind of this cliche, you know, you only live once, but I find it's very hard to mentally force yourself naturally into that position. And I think one of the great blessings that has come to me with this illness is that I enjoy the simple things. I find joy in in so many things. I'm not as likely to take things for granted. You know, my husband and I, in the first part, it was this big bucket list and we went big and wild and crazy and we went uh, dune bugging in California and we went whitewater rafting in Golden. We did a zip line in Fernie. But kind of after you're done that and you're still processing and always always moving because it's like walking on eggshells I just found that it was really important to spend time with family. Adjusting can sound like resignation or giving up but as our conversation moved on to change and adjustment Roxanne talked about how she has embraced both social and personal change as a means of improving her life her relationships, and her community. Coming to terms with a condition like dementia really can be um, eased by that discipline of learning and living in the moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a shift because it's not, a, like I say, a, a natural way of doing things. But then when I'm faced with the decision now, knowing the illness I have, it makes it easier to make certain decisions that I'm thinking, oh, if I didn't know about my diagnosis, I might not have done that. And I'm grateful that that gives me a new perspective when I'm looking at making decisions in the present or going going forward. Now, I, I need to explain a little bit about, I don't think we've said actually what I have, but I have frontal temporal dementia with primary progressive aphasia. So with that type of dementia, where it's a little bit different than other people with dementia, my cognitive function can still remain relatively high over the course of time. And this is where I get, well, you know, you don't look like you have it. But what is impacted and where I, I feel it the most is my speech. Yes. Like, you know, yes. The dictionary that I have used to be a hard a hardback cover and now I'm into a student's paperback. And, and this has probably had me shy away a little bit from some of the media stuff. I did is I'm not feeling as comfortable speaking as I used to be at one point in time. You mentioned that there's a hereditary aspect of this in your family. Has that come up in conversation with them? Yes, it has. I know my daughter, who's a nurse and probably, you know, because she's medically minded, has uh, talked about, you know, 
should I get a genetic test or, or things like that. But I have really discouraged my children from doing that at this time and place in their life. Uh, this last neurologist that I told you about here in Alberta that I saw, he was Dr. Patrick. He was really good explaining to me, like no, no one else had done, you know, if you do this genetic testing, you have to watch those implications in regards to life insurance and other things like that, and that they may yes. need when they're having their children. And if something happens, mortgages are still to be done. So I was really grateful for him taking the, the time and being sensitive to that. And some just don't want to know. It, it comes on my father's side. And the irony of it is that I was diagnosed with it before my father was. But I, I asked my father to go and get testing because it came on his line. And I said, you know, if I have it, dad, more than likely I got it from you. And so I would really wow. encourage you to go and get the testing. So that too was a weird place that to be in. Been a, talk about <laughs> a, a, a difficult conversation. Yeah. And I saw how that changed over time because when I first suggested it, it was no way with him and his wife. And then I started, now that's probably because I'm super hyper aware of what to look for now. And then he and his wife on their own thought maybe, you know, he should get testing. And sure enough, there was, it was discovered. On the other hand, that might be kind of encouraging if your father is still alive and functioning and in relationship with his wife and with you and others, I assume, then that's, yeah. that would be kind of a positive uh, message for you? Do you interpret it that way a bit, Roxanne? Yes, and I heard different people say, oh, maybe it will skip a generation, but my great-grandfather, I have a copy, actually, of his death certificate, and it puts his cause of death as senility, because that's what they used to call it yes. back then, and then my grandfather and all of his siblings, and there was eight in the family, every single one of them got some form of Alzheimer's or dementia. But it's become a neat conversation now that he and I can can talk about. I'll say, oh, this is what my score was. This is what your score was. <laughs> oh, are you having trouble with this? Do you ever think it's just this? So my, my little side support group has become my father and I. Now, you mentioned when you were in uh, Regina that you were able to get together with a group of women that, you know, that were more or less your age that were experiencing <laughs> cognitive difficulty from one condition or another. Do you have access to that kind of a network now, or do you feel that it's less important to you now that you've kind of gone through the initial stages of knowing you have? No, I, you know, I would like support. It's very empowering to talk to someone who's perhaps walking on the same path as you, but I did make friends with one of them. And when I moved, we have still managed to keep in touch via Skype. Facebook, those sorts of things. So I have kind of created my own little network. But if there was something locally or that I could be a, a part of that was suited to my needs with younger people, I would definitely be participating in it. Well, I want to thank you very much for this uh, conversation. It's been uh, really delightful. I think we've touched upon uh, some really uh, interesting ideas. I think you know, the positive energy that 
you know, has flown through this uh, conversation is a really, in itself, an important uh, message for people to hear. Okay, thanks for Thank much. you. Okay, right on. Bye-bye. Thanks, Roxanne. If you would like more information about our series and the research underlying it, please go to our website, DementiaDialogue.ca. There you will also find some of Roxanne's poems, as well as other useful resources to help you learn more about living the dementia journey. You are also invited to join us on Facebook at Dementia Dialogue. Feel free to make a comment or perhaps to share a bit of your experience with dementia. Thanks again to our sponsor for today's episode, the Centre for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University, Thunder Bay, Ontario. Please join us next week for Dementia Dialogue as we continue our conversation on changing and adapting as part of the dementia journey. My name is David Harvey. You are invited to take part in a call-in show Dementia Dialogue is hosting at the conclusion of this podcast series. Please go to DementiaDialogue.ca for more details.